0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Phoenix Pod. Yeah, it's George Rich here, your host. Man, oh man, did we have a fun episode today. All right, so we got Brian Adams on the episode, founder of Excelsior Capital. John Boots and I interviewed him, and did we cover a whole bunch of topics from... Self awareness to mental health to alcoholism to should your nine year old get a phone or not, and everything in between, and all the ups and downs of being a high drive individual, and how that can lead us down some pretty dark paths, as well as the incredible impact the club has had on him, his career, uh, how he is a recovering networker, (laughs) and all kinds of other topics. So, you're in for a treat of an episode. This was awesome great time before we actually get to the episode just a couple of announcements real quick so thursday november 17th is new member vote night and the november board meeting please register for that on eventbrite if you haven't already please be there we need everybody there that's both to sponsor folks and speak on behalf of folks so that we can have a great twenty twenty three class for the new board that's coming in for twenty twenty three. December tenth is the board retreat. Check your emails from Corey Kane. You should have gotten all the information. And then Friday December 16th is the end of your party plus a December board meeting. Details will be forthcoming in your email. Check the bird word for any other additional information that you're looking for. As always, for any prospective members, check out the website. Reach out to us via social media or email. And for current members, obviously, if you want to get a hold of me, feel free to reach out to me via my email that's in the club CRM or any other social media route. Again, Brian Adams, Excelsior Capital, five-year board member of the club, Phoenix Club Whisperer. Here we go. Welcome to another episode of the Phoenix Pod. Yavts Georgeovich here, John Boots here, and our guest today, Brian Adams.
1: What's going on, guys?
0: Brian, for folks who don't know who you are, what's your involvement with the Phoenix Club? What's the, what's the 10,000 foot view?
1: Let's go anecdotal. So I grew up in New York, uh, went to school in Connecticut, met my wife there, she's from Nashville. And we both did the Northeast thing for a little while, both went to graduate school in Boston. I finished school up there. We moved back to Nashville in 2007. So long time ago, I bomb into Nashville and it was the summer that I was studying for the bar exam, which for those who are uninitiative is like the most hellacious summer of your entire life.
2: It's brutal. You take
1: this thing called Barbary, which is just painful and you just, I'd get up in the morning, I'd work out, I'd go to this terrible class and then I would study in the afternoon and it's just rinse and repeat Groundhog Day for basically six weeks. And you take this test, and then you wait. Anyway, so I didn't really know anybody in Nashville. And since I was just locked in on not failing the bar exam, I Googled like Nashville gyms. And we lived in 12 South before it was super cool. Um, it was just kind of cool then. And this like go CrossFit gym in the basement of Cummins Station popped up. And it was close to where I lived. And so I go in there and start working out in the mornings. They had like a 5 a.m. class with a bunch of other psychos. And the guy that taught it, Blake Adams, no relation to me, he was the trainer, really cool guy, super into CrossFit, very, very smart. And after a couple of classes, it just kind of took him aside and was like, what's your deal? Like, What do you do when you're not crushing me in these workouts? He said I'm actually a banker. I was like not what I was expecting, right? And I said, "Not in a creepy way, but I'd love to get coffee." We get coffee, we chat, and he mentions the Phoenix Club. And it turns out he was on the board at the time. And I said, "Well, you know, I don't really know anybody in town, and importantly for me, I wanted my own network of friends, right? I didn't want to just have to rely on my wife and her circle of friends and her high school crew and so Blake said we'll come to an event come check it out and boom I got involved and then at the time again this is you know 2009 um there was a recession on I had to tie my hands because my offer um to work at the DA's office had been rescinded because of a budget cut so a member of the board had to leave I think he got a job somewhere so he had to go to move somewhere else and so that large board position opened up about halfway through my first year and i kind of raised my hand through my hat in the string in the ring and i became really engaged really quickly so that's how i first got involved and learned about it and airing with you guys in a hotel in East Nashville. <laughs>
0: in a, that sounds a lot creepier Probably. than it
1: is. I mean, it is what it is, guys. This hotel room just <laughs> happens to have a podcast <laughs> studio in it.
0: Right, right. Well, and it's it's funny because for me, being a younger member of the club, you're almost like the Phoenix Club whisperer in Nashville. Mm. Like, everybody and their mom knows about Brian. It's like, uh, you can't you can't escape it.
1: I'll take that as a compliment. So I got this at-large membership, and then I just, as part of what I was trying to do professionally became this just hardcore networker, Mm -hmm. and for good or bad, and I've I've kind of worked through this in therapy, but I don't really do anything halfway, and so when I became the membership VP, they gave me a goal, right, and at that time, again, this is probably 2000, gosh, 2011, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but the organization was going through a pretty large pivot in terms of who we wanted to be when we were growing up. And Nashville was changing a lot. And so my mandate was to really expand beyond some of the traditional funnels that were feeding into the club. And so I took it very seriously and I was having multiple coffee, lunches meetings a day, um, meeting with the current membership as well as some of the alums and just really working hard to expand it. And I was more of a volume guy, maybe in <laughs> quality, um, but we, you know, I learned how to kind of do those coffee meetings through being the VP of membership at the club. And I don't do as much now, obviously I'm old, but I still try to send people there. And honestly, it's just very, now that I'm 40, when I have a meeting with a young person who I think is talented, it's really nice to just have a place to send them, which I know will take care of them with good people who are motivated that have kind of leadership designs in their world and that they'll take care of these folks. So I'm just thankful that I have a a place to send them. And honestly, the the club did a lot for me in terms of my development professionally and as an entrepreneur over the last 10 years. I think you you stole my question. Um,
2: Oddly enough, we were not introduced through the Phoenix club lens. Mm. I think it was Kraft Hayes, a mutual friend who introduced us, but you know, to kind of back up what he's saying, I think at this point, I would need at least 10 times as many fingers and toes to count how many people you've sent to me just through the the, the lens of Phoenix Club and trying to keep the membership, you know, ever fresh with new new faces, uh, new ideas, people who move here and are looking to get plugged in, but also are looking to contribute and not just, you know, take, but also equally give. So as, as somebody that's been you know, involved in that now for, geez, six years probably or more. Like I, I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. I was, I was actually going to ask you about your, your, your chronic networking. Um, how is that going now? Are you, are you as active now as you've ever been, or has that slowed down as you've gotten more and more plugged into your firm? And also, can you tell us a little bit about the company you started? And you know, for the benefit of folks who don't know you, which is
1: probably. Uh, again, one hand's worth of people that are listening to this. <laughs> well, before we went live, you reeled off all these people in leadership position, and I, I don't know any of them, which is a very healthy thing. Um, so my time has kind of moved on. But, you know, Landon Gibbs, who was president um, when I just got engaged in the club, described to me the membership was like a roller coaster, right, on purpose. Like we, we recruit and attract these very motivated younger men who aspire to great things. And then if all goes to plan, they they, you know, do great things and they get busy and they they start having a, a social life and a professional life and a family life. And so that engagement dips. And then, you know, at this point I'm when I'm forty and my kids are easier, I can get reengaged. engaged um, is kind of how I think about it. But I answer your question by giving context. So I'm in the real estate business, I've done a bunch of different things. Um, initially started a company called Preem Capital, which um, was a series of funds. The company grew really quickly and got big. Um, I made a ton of mistakes and almost blew it up. You know, we right-sized it. And then I started kind of version 2.0 about four years ago, right before COVID. And we essentially raised capital from a network of high net worth individuals and families. And given the scale of the company, my main job is to be the chief marketing officer, investor relations, business development, sales, whatever moniker you wanna put on it. But my job is to tell the story and to make sure we're engaging with our current investors the right way. And then always kind of refreshing the pipeline with new investors. Answer your second part of the question in terms of networking. When I first got into the business, in the real estate business, I had a mentor who was an old um, life insurance sales guy like one of these Northwestern Mutual dudes that had just grinded it out for 40 years, great guy. And I kind of, he taught me that he wouldn't leave the office early in his career on a Friday until he had three meetings set up for every day the next week. And I thought, that makes sense, but that's not enough for me. So I'll do five meetings a day and 10 (laughs) phone calls a day. So I would do five meetings a day and 10 phone calls a day every day and I did that for a couple of years, even if it was like my father-in-law or my business partner, it had to be on the books. And every time I met with somebody, I would try to make three introductions for them. Even if it was the governor of Tennessee, you know, I'd say, what's your need? Do you need help with something? Maybe I know a guy I can help you out. I can make some introductions or make a referral for you. I certainly don't do that kind of volume any longer. Um, but I think the mindset is the same where every day I wake up and I just think, okay, if I can help as many people as I can and build that karma up. It's always going to come back now with social media and things like podcasting, my podcast and the efforts are different, but I think the, the, the mindset is the same for my networking. Yeah, that's, that's, um,
2: I think that's really interesting. The thing that I kind of z- I guess, focused on while you were talking just then was, um, you know, I think going back to the previous question, you were talking about making mistakes and you talked about founding now two companies. Um, As somebody who recently founded a company, I think entrepreneurship has been on my mind a lot lately and I get a lot of questions about it. So I think for the benefit of anyone listening who is considering that role, it sounds like you've learned a lot about how to be an entrepreneur through the process of becoming one but what what percentage would you say of what you've accomplished is innate you know the drive to set all those meetings and have all those calls um, versus you know what you've picked up along the way I I think a lot of people feel like they have to be programmed to do it and I don't I don't necessarily agree with that but I would love to hear your take yeah I, I totally
1: disagree with that um, and it's funny because obviously we're fil- we're recording this in summer of 2022. The last two years, we've been dealing with this thing called COVID. And events are coming back, right? Conferences, school events. And I was with somebody the other day at a school event at my kid's school. My boys are fourth and first grade. And they only knew me during COVID. And it was typically a small group. Just they were a like our pod family. And it was a school event. There were probably a couple hundred people there. And I rolled into this courtyard and I just got a glass of water went to the corner and he was like what are you doing shouldn't you be mingling you're the annual fund chair and you know all these people and I said I don't like big crowds it kind of freaks me out especially when I'm wearing my social like when I'm wearing my dad hat or my civilian hat I get intimidated but when I wake up in the morning and I have my coffee and I put my armor on and I get my head right I just get into it and so I don't think it is I think you can train yourself, right? You can you can get there if you just have the right mindset, but you can also get out of that costume on the weekends if you want to. So I, I'm not a believer that it's innate that you're born a salesperson or that you're a you know, inveterate networker. I think you can pick it up and it's like any skill. You just get better at it the more you do it. You just need reps and whatever other sports cliche you want to throw at it. That's that's what I believe.
0: Yeah, it's in, it's interesting as you bring up you know, your mentor, as someone who uh, has the PTSD of being part of Northwestern for nine and a half years, <laughs> that, that gauntlet of the three meetings a day, four meetings a day, five meetings a day, whatever it may be, I agree with you, it's completely habit. If you can, whatever it may be, if you can just power through the suck, whatever the suck may be, whatever the difficulty of it may be, then it becomes a habit. I mean, for me personally, no secret, I had a kid earlier this year. And while my wife was pregnant, I decided that I needed to put on some weight as well. You know, just like, I was like, I'm not gonna work out. And then I held my daughter for the first time in February. And I literally remember looking at her and being like, I can't die, I'm not allowed to die. <laughs> this, that is not an option. So I called one of my buddies and I said, give me the easiest workout you can possibly give me to where I cannot miss it. I haven't missed a workout workout in seven months. because And I've steadily gone up. But again, it's just about the cadence, whether it's networking, whether it's working out, whether it's cold calling, whether it's meetings, whatever. I 100% agree with you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a big lesson I learned through the club is, you know, you see people who are successful, and we can define success different ways, but what you envision achieving yourself, and you meet somebody who's five years, quote unquote, ahead of you, and you start talking to them and learning about what they do every day and their routine, and you start seeing fact patterns, you see trends, you see things that all line up together. And depending on what you wanna do, and for what I wanna do, I kind of now understand it, you say, okay, well, I'm. you don't have to replicate it, but you can use it as an example of what you what you need to be doing in your day. And yeah, I, I agree, I, I'm a big believer in just, habit and getting on the schedule and, you know, for sales and and capital raising, if you're not getting a lot of no's, you're not making enough asks. Right. And I'm constantly trying to figure out ways that I can meet other people, plug into different networks, be helpful to them. And the cool part about it now that I look back is you walk into that Phoenix club meeting the first time and you're super intimidated I don't know anybody I just know Blake and you just open yourself up to to, to be vulnerable you start meeting people and being helpful and then it just leads to this crazy pathway again like coming onto the show right I could have said no I love the club and, and I'm friends with both of you guys and you never know who's going to listen to this conversation five years down the road three years down the road reach out to me and then you have a cool phone call and then you help them they help you i mean that's kind of the beauty of of business and really the energy of the club is trying to do well and do good that's the pitch i always used when i was the membership guy
0: so how do you think it's evolved to what it is today from when you first joined because that's that's a common theme it's almost the ethos of the club at this point this evolution you know we were a caterpillar now we're a butterfly
1: Yeah, so when I joined, again, this is, you know, 2009, 2010. um, What I would, it was what I would describe as a Red Solo Cup type of organization. (laughs) So we We have to pay royalties for that use of that phrase. Be careful. We, we, uh, you know, we were, it was very much a fraternity for guys who had just left college. So we would put on cool parties that were fun. And we raised money for Boys and Girls Club, Middle Tennessee for the most part. And it was just, if you were a good guy, you could get in. And we didn't have a whole lot of goal setting beyond raising more money, having bigger parties, having better parties. Frankly, it was it was the Memphis model, right? I mean, big membership, legacy membership, really big parties, pipelines from UT and Ole Miss for the most part. And I remember distinctly, Landon Gibbs, Clay Jackson, and a number of other folks in leadership position at that time, we made a a very thoughtful decision that we're going to turn away from that model and become much more venture philanthropy oriented. We're gonna think think about leadership development and we're not gonna broadcast everything. We're gonna let like-minded folks come to us and be more judicious on the membership side. And it's become, it's incredible when I meet people who are in the club today, younger folks, how talented, how motivated they are, how driven. And a a big thing for us was trying to get more diverse, which has been a challenge, right? But that was an initiative that started probably in the 2011, 2012 timeframe. And it's been incremental, but it's something that we've focused on for sure. So it's come a long way and i think it's hard for new members to maybe have that perspective obviously so i when you're in the trenches you, in change seems to be really slow and you have these you know this new leadership comes on they want to do 10 things and you end up doing 3 but that's kind of the way that these big boats move right and if you have a if you look back from 2010 to today it's dramatic the development i think that's refreshing to hear
2: um as somebody who's now been in the group for 5 years i know says a little bit newer to the group. So I've I've watched that evolution firsthand. Um, I came in after the transition from status quo, you know, annual line item in the budget to give X dollars to Y organization to let's pick out the best, you know, projects to fund where we can see actual results and, and measure our impact. So it's great to hear that you kind of watch that happen on the front end. And I know um, when I was introduced to the group, it was really just kicking off and it's grown a lot. Um, I also just really enjoyed use of the word good guy. I feel like those are the two most uttered <laughs> words in Phoenix club lore. Uh, he's a good guy. He's such a good guy. Um, you know, I think it's always worth talking about diversity um, and I appreciate you calling that out. I, I don't know if you're aware of this or not. We actually did add a board seat for for diversity, a a VP of IDEA, um, to try to focus on that. And I think a big part of the issue over the years has been, you know, not to not at all a crack on you because I'm just as guilty. We refer the people that we meet, and a lot of times the people that we meet are just like us, you know, in our professions, you know. Brian and I are both in real estate. Um, Yavitsa sales and insurance and there's a lot of finance guys and a few attorneys and you know, we just kind of keep rinsing and repeating. So now we're actually starting to proactively reach out to different groups, which has been a neat shift to watch. And, you know, hats off to Rohith, our um current membership, new membership VP who's really worked hard to work on that. But um it's always interesting hearing from guys who've watched it change and I was gonna ask you how much you you've seen it change But it sounds like you feel like you've watched a lot happen over the last 11 years.
1: I Mean to give perspective. I remember when we had You know our first non-white guy member Wow, our, I mean I remember when we had our first member who was gay and honestly, when we talked about diversity initially, it was within, it was to get outside certain industries. Yeah, Cause that's where we had to start because to your point, our networks are where they are. And You also don't want to be disingenuous and artificial sure. and just check a quota box. I mean, these were people that we wanted to have within our circle that we knew and trusted. And so initially it was, let's get some people outside of healthcare. <laughs> let's get some people outside of professional services or financial services. Yeah, and even that was kind of a struggle honestly Hmm. Um, because from their perspective organization didn't cater towards their needs right so it's it's slow but I think even just having the conversation in the board meeting was a big step initially and you know kind of like the decision to shift away from the Red Solo Cup model it, it was rocky and there was some pushback from some of the older members for sure um because change can be scary for a lot of people
0: well, and it's it's difficult too because in order if you look at the actual process of being a prospective member, I mean I did how many coffees in the morning or for lunch or whatever, the reason I was able to do those things is because I'm in a profession where I control my calendar right If I got to clock in at eight at enY or wherever, that's a lot more difficult especially if I'm if I'm not single in 25.
1: <laughs> and, and the thing that I've realized now, which we should have talked about at the time, but we were we just didn't know amongst certain groups and ethnicities and different, you know, socioeconomic um, cohorts, the soft skill concept of networking is foreign, right? Why are you asking me to have coffee? I already have friends and I've got a job. Like I go to my job and then I hang out with my friends and family after work and on the weekends, just teaching that soft skill of, hey, in in a lot of professions, like that is the job. But you have to be empathetic towards that and and almost teach it. And especially if you're a first generation college student who's entering into the workforce as a white collar worker for the first time in your family, you just don't know. Right. How to do that because you learn it from other people. And I just don't think we had that concept in our heads. Yeah, I think that's that's
2: an interesting observation to, to share. And I, I, you know, that's not something that I ever thought about before I came into the group and started having meetings where that came up in one way or another. Um, one of the things that really interests me going forward is I'm kind of phasing out of the club over the next year or two. Is engaging alumni, people like you, the people who did all of this work five, 10, 15, now even twenty years ago. Um, Thanks for that, John. <laughs> I didn't say which bucket you <laughs> fell into, so um, we'll let the we'll let the listeners decide. Yeah. Um, but you know, re-engaging the people who built the foundation on which we're standing now, and getting them involved. So. A couple of things that come to my mind at this point now that you have spent your time in Phoenix Club and are investing your time elsewhere now what does philanthropy look for you post post Phoenix Club and then also different but similar question how would you suggest we re-engage other alumni to get them involved and supportive because I think that's a that's a big
1: topic among our our group now yeah let's your second question first. Um, <laughs> I feel like every year I was on the board, and that was probably five years or something total. Every year I was on the board, one of the major initiatives was how to engage the alums. <laughs> and so I remember being in HCA Building 2, and this came up in, in a board meeting with, with Tom Hoy who was the president. I mean, I remember this vividly. And we said, yeah, we can engage the alums. Like, let's let's think through that. And I remember somebody said, well, who's got the, the Excel with all their information? And everyone was like, what do you mean? So, well, wh- how do you track all the membership stuff, like names, addresses, phone numbers, emails? And they were like, oh, dude, that, there is no such thing. And I remember Tom had to reach out to Charles Robert Bone and these older, at the time, like older members, and just say, hey, who was in your class? And I remember it took us a year just to compile a really crummy contact list. And we had to scrape LinkedIn, and we had bad emails and bad phone numbers, missing information. And so, again, you can't engage people that you don't know how to get in touch with. And so the first step was just figuring out who they were and then what to do with it. And the what to do with it problem has been ongoing for a long time. I always personally felt that we spent so much time and energy attracting, cultivating, developing these people. And then when they turn 35 or 40, whatever the age is now, it's just, they go into the ether. I thought that was the dumbest thing in the world. And I understand having age requirements because people need to be in a certain phase of life. and. That makes sense to me, but you've spent all this time and energy to, to, to bring these people together. You should be leveraging. And then also when you're 40, 50, 60, some of these people are doing really impressive things and they wanna give back. Correct. Maybe not writing a check, but they've got maybe more time, resources, contacts. They wanna be mentors. And I always thought kind of a three-pronged approach of they could opt in either, hey, I'm really busy. I'm gonna stroke you, stroke you a check or, Hey, I've got some time. Why don't you link me up with a current member who's in my industry and we can do a monthly lunch or I can be a mentor. And then three, like whole hog. I want to get back on the board. We have kind of a super advisory committee for alums. I just could never get anywhere with it. It was always kind of on the back burner. And by the time I left, um, it was just blown in the wind.
0: I love the idea of a super advisory, like the Ventures of alumni <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, because you realize you know, after living in the face of the earth for forty years, like the same things keep happening over and over again, and you could maybe save a ton of time and energy and brain damage if somebody who was fifty five just said, "Stop, right Don't right. do that. Do this. I've seen this movie before. Fair enough.
2: It almost sounds to my ears like you're describing. A university development or like alumni association model, where there is leadership and people that organize events um, under the umbrella of of you know bringing people back together and creating mixer opportunities. Because, I mean, a lot of the guys that are in the club now probably don't know any alumni because we're starting to attract more and more people who are moving to Nashville as opposed to you know folks who have been here their whole lives, which I think is a great thing. So, um, I mean, does does that resonate with you or does that sound kind of like what you were just describing in a
1: sense? hundred percent. And yeah. I always thought, wearing my VP of membership hat, man, I'd love to have this like arrow in my quiver if I had a prospect that I really wanted to convert and maybe they're on the fence and they were a, a young attorney and I could say, hey man, what about if I could hook you up with a monthly mentor cocktail session with Charles Robert Bone. That'd be attractive. Right. I mean, that prospect's going to go, because a lot of these people, and increasingly in Nashville, they've already made money. They've got really good professional bona fides. They probably have a pretty robust network socially. So what can you offer them to entice them to come in? And it's, it's that human connectivity, it's that person who otherwise is not gonna respond to your email, not gonna give you the time, but because you have that affinity, kind of like a college where, if somebody from my school reached out to me blind, and said, oh, I played the cross at and would you have time for a call? 100% yes, yes, I'm gonna do that, 100 times out of 100 times, I'm gonna give that person the, the time.
0: Right, right, right.
1: So if we could leverage that, I think it would make the, alums really happy and engaged and probably give more. And then also be a huge value add for current and and prospective members.
0: I think that's such a key because, you know, as I think through what was most attractive about Phoenix Club, and I was actually talking to a prospective member about that not too long ago, like I'm 32, I don't have everything figured out, but I would like to think for my age, like I'm doing well, you know what I mean? Like life's, life's good, professionally good, et cetera. And the more people I kept meeting, the more I kept being like, man, I need to step it up. Like, what am I doing with my life?
1: Well, and there's, there's also, we don't have to do this de novo from scratch. I mean, what I, I, after I left Phoenix Club, I, I kind of just drifted around. You talked about philanthropy. I never answered a question. I've been on some nonprofit boards. It's been pretty unsatisfying, frankly. Haven't really found my niche until I got into YPO. And I got into YPO about 18 months ago. It's a young president's organization for folks who don't know it. And kind of like Phoenix Club, a lot of people who I really respected kept saying, you need to do this. And during COVID, I finally had the time I had to do it. Game changer. And what made me think of it was that statement you just made, because the pitch they use is, okay, you're 35, you're done well, we're going to get you into a room where you're the least motivated person in that room. Ooh. And when they said that line on me, I was like, I'm in and I'm all in and it's the truest thing you'll ever hear. And it's, it's, it's maybe whatever cliche, like it's maybe level up and like totally think about my business differently. Cause these people, just because I am part of this organization with them, will give you this time and they'll show you what they've accomplished. Don't step in this pothole. And you, you connect with these people that otherwise would not spend time with you. And you're like, good Lord they've just built this huge empire. And I'm not saying it's all about the money, but just the way they think about their business is totally different than what I did. And you just want more of it. And then it makes you realize, man, now I want to recruit people that I think are talented and motivated and get them in here and give back to this organization. It's a 35,000 global member organization, but they have a thing called YPO Gold, where if you age out at 50... they've they've really spent a lot of time and thought into that so there are models that we can use we don't have to kind of come up with this out of thin air so do we have a list of alumni (laughs) did did, did the excel ever get made we had a we had a version of it i I don't we
2: do okay
0: boots are shaking his head yes we
2: we do we do um it's not being we'll say fully utilized yet so it's like whatever proof Portion of your brain turns off when we're doing a podcast. So Dave
1: Hansett has it somewhere, the... and <laughs>
2: it's probably folded up in his in his jacket pocket. Knowing knowing him, um, one thing I want to talk about a little bit more. You specifically mentioned your own mentor earlier. You also mentioned how um, when you joined Phoenix Club, there was a, a push to focus on leadership development, which is definitely. I mean, it's part of our mission now. That was amended at some point in the past, uh, to develop our members into, to leaders. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know what your thoughts going forward in your career now that you have successfully run a couple companies, you're obviously still growing. You mentioned YPO. Um, that almost sounds like it could be mentorship for Phoenix club organization over organization, but like, how do you intend to be a mentor to to people going forward, and, and what lessons do you think people in our shoes could learn about um, about fulfilling that role for other people who are trying to come up and, and make something of, of themselves?
1: Yeah, I don't feel comfortable being a mentor because it makes me feel old, and I feel like I'm still very much in the fight and in the game. But you do, I mean, I just came here to this recording session from a lunch meeting with a young, hungry, twenty-six-year-old private equity manager who's doing some cool things, and he started talking, and I couldn't help myself. I just said, "Whoa! Before you get there, you got to start here." Mm. And if I saved him six months of time, that's pretty powerful because you realize, yeah, absolutely, your biggest rate-living factor, no matter what you want to do in your life, is just your time. Sure, and it, be it being a, a dad being a, a business leader, you know, being in politics, being a part of the organization, you've only got so much time. And so if you can save people that effort, be more efficient with their time, I think it's super powerful. And so when I think about leadership or when I'm on these other podcasts and people say, How do you define success? I always say, you know, if I can help other people become successful entrepreneurs and start companies and employ people and create quality of life for their families. And it can grow exponentially. Like I'm good. I've done some good in the world. Agree. And I would apply the same thing to the club, right? If I can take somebody who moved here from LA, he's talented and I can just say, Hey, have coffee with John boots. And if that leads him into leadership at the club and he does a bunch of great things like that downstream impact. I think it's huge.
2: I thought we were talking about helping people. <laughs> <laughs> That's a you sunk my battleship kind of comment <laughs> now that I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I think that there's actually a lot of lessons to be learned there. I think men- mentorship starts when you want it to, and it doesn't have to be formal. Right. And yeah, I think, um, I'm not going to comment on how many gray hairs I see looking at anyone in this room or in the mirror. Um, but. Yeah, I, I do think that we all start to pick up things. I mean, Yavita, you're you're the youngest person in the room. You've already learned a lot of things and things that you can impart on on people and as you spend more time in Phoenix Club, I'm sure that those lessons will be passed along and it's just fun to think like Brian said about helping people, saving time is critical. So,
1: when you think when I think back at my early years in the club, you know, a couple things stand out. One, I remember I through Clay Jackson got introduced to the Entrepreneur Center, started hanging out with a lot of entrepreneurs, some of whom were Phoenicians. And I always learned more from the guys that had failed, that had blown up. And they were very honest and open. And you realize once you get into the game of being an entrepreneur, or a business owner, being able to reach out to somebody who's been on the roller coaster like you are doing, and you can go have a beer with them and just they'll listen, that's super powerful. And not a lot of people have that. And so plugging into that, it's huge. And then two, part of the genesis story for the company is being able to attend Michael Bertram's Launch of the Venture class as a Phoenix Club member. I mean, I remember the next day putting together a business plan. Mm, I mean, it was wow. that sudden. And if that happened to me, and that happened to a few other people in that class, and we got access to it through the club, I mean, that's a real thing.
0: I think it's interesting to me, one of the things that I've observed about the club Because I always have to give the caveat when I'm telling people that I'm a member of the club, they're like, cool, like you smoke cigars in a room and drink whiskey, and I'm like, (laughs) hold on now, guys. But the thing that I'm I'm impressed by, and and I vividly remember this from, I don't know if you remember how we met, but you cold called me to get on my podcast.
1: Yes, sir. Yeah,
0: so (laughs) I was like, fine, let's go.
2: Hashtag humble brag. Yeah,
0: I remember vividly in that episode, and it stood out to me so much. You know, I've got this guy in commercial real estate running this fund, or I don't know if you had started Excelsior yet, but. And we talked about you making a transition from an attorney to, to this world, and you said, well, hold on, let's take a second and, and have a re- reality check here. I'm a, a good looking white dude from who went to the right school, who married the right girl, who's part of the right country clubs. I worked hard, but there was also a lot of things that just lined up correctly. And what I appreciated about that, and what I appreciate about pretty much everybody I've met in the club is the self-awareness that is, that is quite present. I mean, it, you can feel it when you're talking to folks.
1: Yeah, I think we could all use more of a reality check, honestly. And you know, I, I mentioned that on a lot of shows that I go on or when I talk to people, and I, I'm not gonna, you know, apologize for it, but it certainly is a big part of what allowed me to take the risk and, and to get it to certain doors. And you talk about raising capital, it's a lot easier when you marry the right person and, and you know, these meetings just kind of come, um, without a ton of effort and it's, it doesn't go, it doesn't, it's not lost on me. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you having me on my show, on your show. That's fun.
0: Oh, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you being on here. But again, I think that's such a big, I, I think because we are surrounded by the folks that we surround ourselves by I think we forget how unique that worldview is to to have that reality check on yourself and say, "Time out, Okay. Why am I in the position that I'm in? Yes. The things that I've controlled and the things that might be out of my control. And it just makes every interaction so much more
1: honest. When you talk about changes in the club from then to now, I mean, this is a conversation that would never happen back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it You'd was very, both the doors yeah, from, it was yeah. very much like, Hey, we're going to talk about business and like, crushing work and we have these other aspirations maybe, but we did not have the openness or vulnerability that I've experienced just in the last 45 minutes with you guys in this room, it couldn't go there. Mm. And so to see it happening in real time and to now be at a stage where I'm more comfortable talking about you know, certain issues, mental health, um, et cetera, some of the challenges and failings that I've had in the company, um, I think it's 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 something to be celebrated we need to be aware of it and the more of it we can get throughout the club the better in my opinion
2: I agree I think vulnerability is now I think it's a key factor of being a successful person because I think it the, rela- the relatability is just it, it goes up thousands of percent right off the bat when you open yourself up to somebody else Um, You you said a couple words that are a real hot button with me, and that's mental health. Um, You kind of, I think, somewhat tongue-in-cheek mentioned therapy earlier. I'm curious, um, what do you think now, um, you know, one of the things we've we've pushed into in Phoenix Club has been supporting mental health. Um, You know, do you have any suggestions for young professionals, people that are, you know pushing themselves really hard to be successful how to still take care of your brain and your you know how that relates to your body and your overall
1: wellness what 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 do you do to take care of you success does not equal happiness and some of the most miserable times of my life have been when i accomplished external goals that i set for myself that had no meaning so X amount of money in my bank account, X amount of square foot under management, X amount of employees, getting into certain organizations, you realize that those are lonely, desolate places where the only thing there is just some other bigger goal to hit. And there's no ending. It's this hedonic treadmill where you get desensitized to success and you become addicted to it. It's not to say that you shouldn't strive, you shouldn't be motivated. It's not to say that you shouldn't have huge goals. But you need to compartmentalize them and put them in their relative place. Right. Compared with your physical health, your mental health, your social health. And as somebody who's 40, and if if anybody listened to this is that young gunner, late 20s year old running around. Please do yourself a favor and establish some decent friends and keep those friends close to you during a period where you're striving professionally and creating a family because the biggest challenge I see in my 40 year old cohort is loneliness.
0: I heard a great quote from somebody I interviewed. He said, most guys, particularly men die in their forties and we just wait until their eighties to bury them.
2: Woof.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're getting, it's getting real, but I, so for instance, let's go, let's go there though. So yeah, I played lacrosse in college, it was a big part of my identity, it was a big part of my experience in school, some of my best friends, fraternity brothers, and I graduated in 2004. We've had two members of our team pass away, and let me tell you, you do not want the next time to see people that you think are your friends at a wake or a funeral. Right. I agree. And some of these that people is- that you think you're close with you realize, shit, I haven't talked to them in 15, 20 years. You don't want that because um, it happens fast. Sure. So I definitely would encourage people to, you know, reach out, talk to them, carve out the time because, you know, when you, if you put all of your identity into your marriage or your kids, or for most of us, our job, and I think. I can't remember, I think it was Arthur Brooks or somebody I've been listening to. I can give you some good material after. The the litmus test is if somebody comes up to you at a cocktail party or social event and asks you who you are or what you do, and your answer is your job, you're 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 out of whack. Like your priorities are wrong. That's not what you should lead with. Cause when you leave the job. What are you and, then? Like, You put your stuff in a cardboard box and you think, oh, like I helped build this place Monday when the new or when the rest of your coworkers come and your colleagues and they show up on Monday, you're gone, man. Like nobody cares. It's over. Yeah.
2: I think that's sage advice. Um, I know when we had coffee in Bell Mead earlier this year at the dab bar at the dab bar <laughs> where there was coffee you can also get you can also get coffee there yeah i, I heard there was coffee there yeah um Great coffee when we when we met there i think you were just about to go on vacation and and unplug pretty pretty hardcore it sounded like for the most part um and i remembered you also mentioned you i guess doing a lot of reading what um what are some books you'd suggest to folks um i'm always i'm always curious to know what's on other people's reading lists yeah
1: and again we're gonna have to snapshot this that i'm a a 40 year old guy who uh you know it is what it is right but um here we go finding life in the finding meaning in the second half of life by james hollis phd (laughs) from strength to strength by arthur c brooks why are we are restless by Benjamin story slow down? I'm writing these down. I'm not far behind you <laughs> I'll send you the I'll send you the perfect and then uh, I've got some really good money ones the psychology of money By Morgan household. I'm actually trying to get him on my podcast The thin green line by Paul Sullivan is really good. And so you can see a trend here where <laughs> You know, I think for a lot of us It's like man, my, my kids are nine I've only got seven more summers eight more summers with my kid you know, the actuaries telling me I'm going to live to be like 85. (laughs) I got a lot of time left and I got to figure out what to do with it. And I'll give you a really good one is, um, this is water, um, is by, um, what's his name? It's, um, it's a book that basically says like, if you can't figure out, um, yeah, David Foster Wallace okay david foster wallace this is water it was a commencement speech he gave at Kenyon. the only time he gave a commencement speech um the, the basic premise is you've got to figure out a way to live through life without just when you turn 45 wanting to just shut it all down because if you let every little thing aggravate you and if you put a lot of angst and aggression and focus on the wrong things, it'll drive you insane. Right. You've, you've, you've got to figure out a way to let some things go. And I just feel like especially for, you know, white middle-aged males you know, we typically have a big challenge with friends, social settings, workaholism, alcoholism, substance abuse are, are real problems. I'm not advocating for one way to live but I certainly know what not to do
0: I've definitely noticed I was actually doing some self-reflection you know from 22 to 32 I think the thing that I've noticed in myself is I'm so much less petty now like I just don't I don't hold a grudge I don't care I don't even people that maybe I've five years ago I would have held a grudge against something some interaction that we had at this point I'm like whatever dude like <laughs> you know let, let's let bygones be bygone I I, I really that is probably the biggest thing that I've noticed in myself. Like you, you almost, I'm not saying I don't have an ego. I very much so do. I'm not, I'm not delusional.
2: There's a fourth chair in the room. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But there, but there, there is a certain level of checking that ego more and more and being comfortable with checking that ego that I've noticed with age.
1: And that goes back to this network, right? This things like the Phoenix club and having a podcast and seeing the fact patterns and learning how people be successful. You don't have to replicate that, but you can learn a lot from it, right? And you can try these things on and see what works for you. Like for me, you know, I struggle with drinking. Mm -hmm. Like I sometimes have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, period, paragraph. During the week, I just don't drink. I don't bring that challenge to the table because sometimes I don't know if it's okay to have two, three, or four or when I'm traveling, it can be a real problem because I get kind of sad when I'm alone on the road. So like, if you just remove the option and you realize, man, I just like, I get up early, I go to the gym, I do my thing, I work really hard. And then in certain settings, it's not a problem. Like when I'm at home with my wife, a drink or if I'm at a game, it's not a big deal or with I'm with my friends, but like alone in the hotel in Columbus, Ohio on a Tuesday, it's pretty dark. And if you learn those things and you can kind of remove them and think, okay, this works for me, like, don't be afraid to, to, you know, do that. Don't be afraid to execute on it.
2: Appreciate you saying that. I think, I think, again, we talked about vulnerability already. I think, you know, for me, a lot of it has just been one of my big life lessons as I've gotten older is learning about boundaries. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think the thing that a lot of people, focus on when they start learning about boundaries is where they exist with regards to other people. And you sometimes overlook where you need to put them in place for yourself. So I think that's a a really classic example. And it's funny, um, you know, Yavitsa mentioned his now how many year workout, um, not missing a workout regimen?
0: Oh, seven months.
2: Seven months. I mean, that's a long time. I know when we met earlier this year, you told me, because you got all jacked all of a sudden, you'd started working out. I'm now on this like crazy workout um, schedule, and it's it's really as simple as like you you do what you tell yourself you're gonna do, and what you don't make excuses to avoid. So I think that what you just said is a, a great example of how people can just you know obviously there's a there's a there's a struggle or a challenge in the midst, but focus on what you want out of it, and then just pursue it wholeheartedly. You can do
1: it. Yeah, I mean work is like the tsunami never ends. And so if you don't create these boundaries, I like that term a lot, and you don't carve out places for you to, to have your own time, it'll be overwhelming. And you know I can tell you from personal experience that the work can, can become an avoidance behavior. Yes. Like, gosh, things at home aren't great, or I'm struggling with how to be a dad. If I just work harder, it'll solve it. Yeah. It's not going to like, it's not, money will solve your money problems, but it won't, it won't cause your life problems. Um, you still got to figure out how to be a, how to be a human.
0: Well, and I want to talk about something, just a powerful statement that you made about alcohol and yourself and your relationship to alcohol. That's what gets me jacked up about, for example, conversations like this and, and the Phoenix club in general, because in my opinion. Now, you know, my background, I came to the States when I was 10, particularly between 18 and 22. I think in the United States, we have the most insane culture around alcohol. I, you could, if you want to create Chinese communist, like infiltration of the, you know, U S society, it's, it's that that's the culture of the insanity that we've created. And there's really never a reckoning to it because, okay, you're, you're, at least in my opinion, you're, you're partying and it's always forgiven. Or you're a kid. You're a kid. You're in a frat. What, what, Okay. At some point that stops and you're not just partying and maybe you're like tinkering with alcoholism. And if you don't have anybody to just point blank, say like, Hey, this is not a good move. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not healthy for myself or whatever. may be," you can just end up going down that spiral and just creating a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's it's like a lot of things where you know if you're if you're using it as a numbing agent and you're trying to use it to cram down emotions that are natural and and that's kind of what I'm trying to teach my children. What's cool about what's happening with t- today in schools and and I hope the conversations like at the club, just this emotional intelligence of knowing that it's not normal to be happy all the time. It's not normal yes. to be sad all the time. Yes. Like we go through these cycles, we go through different the roller coaster of emotion inside out, Pixar movie. And you know, it you've got to, you've got to live in that feeling and you've got to be comfortable with it. And most of it starts from, I think, from you know, people in my world, just you can call it um, you know, imposter syndrome or self-hatred. But I think most people just don't feel comfortable in their skin. Right. it if you were to challenge somebody who is in the club who is ambitious someone like me a couple years ago why don't you sit still for 12 minutes Ooh. there's just no way <laughs> people would lose their minds I mean that's the problem is like we have to be engaged all the time successful people who want to achieve these big things it is go 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 and there's no stop and I mean, I force myself to do it every once in a while with my kids. That's the, it's a Quaker school thing where they do 12 minutes of silence every day. I'm not Quaker, but, um, it's pretty interesting if you were to challenge somebody with it. I I don't think many people could do it. Yeah. I just, I just read a book about,
2: um, about social media as Brian gets his phone out. Um, (laughs) and And basically how we're losing our ability to pay attention to things and and that's one of that's one of the things the author talks about is is how people don't just sit and detach themselves from from technology or distractions anymore and just kind of process life Um, i found i just a lot of times now i put my phone in the room away from where i am with my kids my partner you know right when i'm done with work at the end of the day and that's been super healthy and it's really interesting hearing the comments from inside the family and you know they start saying oh where's your phone or I haven't seen you get your phone out in a while and and you, you know over time those start to become I guess fewer farther in between but it's just it's made me happier and I don't feel as dependent on that but I think that speaks to what you're saying is you almost have to trick yourself sometimes to get away from that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've got a, my oldest is nine and he's asked for a phone for sure. And his yeah. friends have them and the school, um, the way they put it is this is a family decision. And if you don't feel comfortable talking to your child about pornography, you can't be comfortable with them having a phone. Yeah. And 100%. That, that puts things in perspective yep. very quickly yep. Yeah, of, okay, no right like we're not gonna do this right now that
0: is such a good but way. that's
1: the way they they don't tell you yes or no but they say the right way to think about this is if you're ready to have that conversation then go for it if not then you and should wait and there is no that's the first I mean, thing that's gonna happen yeah there's
0: no place where a nine-year-old should be looking at porn no no place no no your brain is nowhere even near ready for that
1: it's yeah. a great approach covered a lot of ground on the conversation i know i was about to say it's a great place to drinking, <laughs> fellowship
0: right we uh we we had our uh, come to jesus moment on this, uh, it, got, on this it got
1: real it's fun we are up on on time
0: yep. as we're approaching 57 minutes pre-edit um any parting words on the podcast for the club for prospective members for folks in the community who might be listening to this who are looking to maybe get their nonprofit involved or or just in, get involved with the club in general without being a member um what are, what are some of your parting thoughts?
1: I mean, looking back on it, it it really was a catalyst for me to become a better friend, an entrepreneur. It It not forced me, but put me in proximity to people that were doing really interesting, compelling things and having conversations otherwise I would not have and challenged me in a lot of ways. And I think that's really healthy for people who are in their 20s and 30s. So if you're perspective or you're contemplating, you know, get out there and, and attend an event and reach out to somebody. If, if you just want to be supportive of everything we're doing on the venture philanthropy side, you know, please reach out and we have some incredible resources and really, really good leadership and membership right now. And um, I encourage you to reach out and get involved.
0: Boots, any final words?
2: Always a pleasure, Brian. Appreciate the realness. Um, I hope Anyone who laid ears on this gets uh, a couple nuggets of wisdom from a, um, how old did you say you were? 40? I yeah, so. I appreciate you uh, re- repeating that at the end here. Yeah, 40 years. 40 years yeah. It's okay. You repeated it a couple times, too. Um, no, seriously, though, um, we really, obviously, we we value you as a person, as I think a, a mentor within the club to people who are trying to grow and to be better personally and professionally. So this is great. Thank you. No, thank you all for doing this. This is great.
0: Appreciate you both coming out here, and thank you for giving me an episode where I do a whole lot less talking. (laughs) (laughs) Your voice sounded tired today. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Uh, For everybody listening, we'll have all the description, um, how to get a hold of Brian, the club, all that good stuff, follow-up, maybe even the book list. We'll see. Uh, We'll have it in there, and hope you guys have a great rest of your day.